chapter 22, starting in verse 30. Word of God reads this way. Let's stand together. Sorry, thank you. Stand together if you're able to stand out of respect and reverence for the word of the Lord. But on the next day, desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews, he unbound him, that's the tribune, and commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet, and he brought Paul down and set him before them. Verse 1, chapter 23. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law? Yet contrary to the law, you order me to be struck. Those who stood by said, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. Now when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees, the other were Pharisees, he cried out in the council, Brothers, I am a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, and the assembly was divided. For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angel, nor spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. Then a great clamor arose, and some of the scribes and the Pharisees' party stood up and contended sharply, We find nothing wrong in this man. What if a spirit or an angel spoke to him? When the dissension became violent, the tribune, afraid that Paul would be torn to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and to take him away from among them by force and bring them into the barracks. The following night, the Lord stood by him and said, Take courage. For as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore, you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you as though you were going to determine his case more exactly. And we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. So he went and entered the barracks and told Paul, Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took him and bound him to the tribune and brought him to the tribune and said, Paul, the prisoner, called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand and going outside asked him privately, What is it that you would have to tell me? And he said, the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them. For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. Now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So, Tribune dismissed the young man charging him. Tell no one that you informed me of these things. This is God's word. Amen. And you may be seated. What is it that gives you courage? 
What gives you courage? Would others that know you describe you as a courageous person? Are you known for boldness, fearlessness in the face of uncertain times? If you have any courage at all, where does that courage come from? C.S. Lewis wrote a lot about the idea of courage. One of his most quoted phrases that we plaster over the walls of our homes and coffee shops that is so rarely treated in context is, Courage, dear heart. Courage, dear heart. Some homeschool families know where that's from, I'm sure. Right? What is that from? The Chronicles of Narnia? A book entitled The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There's a scene in this book in which... Uh, the children are on a ship toward an island, and they are told that at this island all their dreams would come true. As they approach the island, uh, the clouds come in and it's full of darkness, and they realize not all their dreams are good dreams. And so it becomes not a happy place, but a scary place. And so they begin to uh, paddle away from the island as fast as they can, but they're being overcome by the darkness, and it's really scary. And in the midst of this panic, Lucy whispered, Aslan, Aslan, if you ever loved us at all, send us help now. The darkness did not grow any less, but she began to feel a little, a very, very little better, is what the book says. Then all of a sudden, a small beam of light enters the darkness and illumines the ship. The text says, Lucy looked along the beam and at first saw something like a cross, then an airplane. Then eventually she saw it as an albatross. The great bird landed on the prow of the ship and then flew in front to guide them out of the darkness. As it circled the ship, the albatross whispered to Lucy, Courage, dear heart. And the voice, she felt sure, was Aslan's, and with a voice, a delicious smell breathed into her face. Lewis loved to write about Courage in the Midst of Darkness. Uh, the Screw Tape Letters, another one of uh, his famous uh, writings, um, he's, he says this about courage. I found this very uh, compelling. He wrote then in the Screw Tape Letters, Courage is not simply one of the virtue, one of the virtues, but the form of every virtue at its testing point, which means the point of highest reality. Courage is something required in all Christian virtue. It's the thing that shows whether or not we will look along the light of Christ in the midst of darkness or whether we will be overcome by the darkness when we are tested by it. If we will practice love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, all of those will require courage. For if we only love when it's easy to love, or when they love us back, well, don't the tax collectors and the, 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 the sinners do that? You know, even they love those who love them back. But it takes courage to love those who hate us, as Jesus would say. All Christian virtue is displayed when it is not easy to be a Christian. This is when courage shows up. So what is the source of that courage? I was reminded how simple this really works this week as we traveled to South Carolina to see my f family. You guys have a good fourth? Good week? Uh, it's a good week. And we uh, got to spend some time with my family. My parents have a pool. 
And Isla is at a fun age where she can be a little bit more independent, curious. She's exploring. This is her first time swimming in a pool, you know, as a toddler, a little bit more independence than she uh, than last summer. And uh, so at first she's a little anxious. She wants to dip her toes in. She's excited, but not ready, right? She sees grandma and grandpa swimming around, gamma and gampa, as she calls them. And she's excited by that, but it's not enough for her to go all the way. And as she's sitting on the steps, just observing, wondering if she's going to get in or not, she turns her head back at me and says, Daddy, swim. Daddy, swim. She wanted me to swim with her, and as soon as I did, her face beamed with the courage to jump in the water. Her courage came from knowing that Daddy was with her. And so it was with the Apostle Paul in Acts 23. Verse 30, chapter 22, which we read at the beginning of our text, it says that the tribune and the rest of the council, the, the crowds, were desiring to know the real reason why he was being accused by the Jews. He already had testified, you know, his, his old testimony, what happened at Damascus last week. Clearly, that was illegitimate. That couldn't be the real reason that Paul was being accused. So they want to find the real reason, and they unbound him. They commanded the chief priests and all the council to meet. This is basically another interview before the Sanhedrin. All of the apostles now have had to stand before the Sanhedrin to uh, be drilled. And so he is sitting before the highest rulers in the land, both for the Jewish religion and for the Roman government. There is a way out of this, of course, if he will modify his story from last week. If he can tell them what they want to hear or change a few things here and there that make them angry, he can do some public repentance and he can uh, maybe get out of this. But he did not account his life of any value, nor as precious to himself, if only he may finish the course assigned to him to testify to the grace of the gospel of God. If he's not going to change his story before the people who are able to execute him, he will need some serious courage. Our text tells us today that Paul's courage came from knowing that the Lord stood with him. That's verse 11, which is kind of a thesis for the whole chapter, or at least the first half of the chapter that we're covering today. The Lord stood with Paul and gave him courage. Beloved, the source of our courage has not changed. If we are to be courageous people who look to the light in the midst of darkness, it is because we know that the Lord stands with us. And so I've divided the text for us into three portions, all starting with the letter H for your listening pleasure and note-taking diligence, and because we're Baptist. Hypocrisy, hope, and help. Hypocrisy, hope, and help. Hypocrisy, verses 1 through 5. Let's read it one more time to, to remember what it says. Looking intently at the council, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law, and yet contrary to law you order me to be struck? Imagine Paul scanning the council, looking intently at each eye, standing even before the high priest, and then boldly opening his mouth 
with that olive branch title, brothers. Same thing he called them in the last chapter when he did his whole testimony. Brothers. Brothers. Paul's sticking to his story. He's not going to change his story. He considers himself a true Jew, just like all those who are standing before him. And he seeks peace with his brothers. And he, he begs them, urges them to listen to his words legitimately. And this is the first clue, just by the word brothers, that he's sticking to his story and he's not going to change it. Uh, so he testifies before them that he's lived his life before God in all good conscience up to this very day. It's a statement confirming Paul's integrity when he left Jerusalem to preach the gospel. And even now, as he stands before the high priest, he's been telling the God honest truth both then and now. I ain't lying. I'm not a liar. Paul may have even meant here that he was faithful to Yahweh even before his conversion. He, he was who he was. He persecuted Christians because he was faithful to Yahweh. And he wasn't shy about it. He believed what he believed and he practiced what he believed. And he still believes what he believes and practices what he believes. He has kept the God on his truth, and he's not a liar. And so what does it mean to have a good conscience? He says, I've had a good conscience. I believe the Bible refers to the conscience as this kind of moral compass of the human life. Our conscience, of course, can't always be trusted because sometimes we confuse our flesh and our feelings with the truth. But in Christ, the Holy Spirit now convicts our conscience of the truth so that we can walk in newness of life. Paul says in Romans 9 that his conscience bears witness with what the Holy Spirit says. That means the Holy Spirit leads our consciences in the truth of God's law, what is right, what is wrong. Um, and Paul tells Timothy to wage the war of faith with a good conscience. He goes on to say, others made shipwreck of their faith, like Hymenaeus and Alexander, because they did not hold the faith with a clear conscience. Paul says in Romans chapter 2 that all are without excuse, because even though the law of God is written on their hearts, they, uh, their consciences condemn themselves. And then Paul says in 1 Timothy 4 that most... Uh, Terrifyingly, some even have seared consciences. Some translations would say as even with a hot iron because of repeated sin and rebellion against the Holy Spirit and the word of his truth. It would be a worthwhile study to think on the Bible's meaning by our conscience and uh, what all that entails. But I bring up this point of his good conscience to show the irony of what happens next in the text. Paul's saying here that there's not one ounce of hypocrisy in my blood. I'm telling you the truth, and I'm doing the truth. And then, in verse 2, the high priest commands Paul to be struck in the mouth. Verse 3, Paul calls him out. He says, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you going to judge me according to the law? You don't even keep the law yourself. Paul's basically saying, I'm no hypocrite, and then the guy who's supposed to be the holiest of all the dudes in Jerusalem does something pretty hypocritical. You see the irony in that passage? Even the high priest, Ananias, does not exemplify that he has a good conscience, and yet the man who stands on trial, who has a good conscience, falsely accused, is the one being condemned. 
and the um, the high priest breaks the law. I mean, it was a Roman law to strike an uncondemned citizen. It was also against God's law to punish someone with a beating before being pronounced guilty. That's written in Deuteronomy chapter 25. This is an amazing contrast, again, from what Paul has declared. I've kept the law with a good conscience my entire life. And then right before his eyes in the, in the public realm, everybody sees it. The high priest breaks the law. And what's worse, the rest of the council, knowing that the high priest has done wrong, rebukes Paul, who did nothing wrong, when the high, and, and basically covers the high priest. Um, the, the, but, but then Paul messes up too, because rebuking the high priest is also against God's law. Paul didn't know that he was the high priest, the text says. I believe this was an honest accident. and you, he, The text doesn't tell us why he didn't know, um, but I think that's reasonable uh, for whatever reason. Maybe he wasn't dressed properly, or a lot of people talk about Paul's vision going out, uh, and he didn't know it was the high priest who made this order, or perhaps he just heard the shout and didn't realize the high priest said, whatever, there's lots of reasonable uh, possibilities for why he didn't know it was a high priest. But he says, if I had known, y'all, I wouldn't have done that. Exodus 22 says that you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. This was an honest mistake. He reviled the high priest accidentally. But the high priest did not accidentally order Paul to be struck. This was willful breaking of the law. So here's the situation Paul's in. The council covering the sins of the high priest, clearly acting in hypocrisy, when Paul is telling the truth with a clear conscience, and yet he's being condemned, falsely accused, while the high priest is excused. So Paul is all alone. Or is Paul all alone? His courage to confront the high priest and tell the truth before the Sanhedrin is actually evidence that he is not alone. As verse 11 tells us, the Lord must have been standing by his side for such courage to be displayed. And there's two applications that I want to give us for this first point of hypocrisy. And the first one is this, um, that if you are all alone in your integrity and you are keeping the faith with a good conscience, you are actually never alone no matter what the context or the situation may look like. You may be the only one in your workplace who's trying to deal with a situation ethically while everybody else is happy to cut corners to save face. The Lord is with you. You might have an unbelieving spouse. You feel totally alone in your walk with the Lord someday. Maybe you're the only believer in your entire family. You are not alone. Maybe you are even falsely accused at some point with some outlandish allegations that hold no water, but everyone is against you. Maybe you're in such a conflict right now. You've done nothing wrong, but it burdens you. You don't know how to get out of it. I'm not saying that we need to fight back or add to the conflict, but I am saying that the Lord is with you if you are truly in the right. Everybody else can call you wrong, but if the Lord calls you right, you are never alone. He stands by those who live in good conscience before him. Trust the Lord when you are in the midst of trouble, knowing that you have done nothing wrong. But the second application is, what if you have done wrong, right? What if you're like most of us in the, in the room who are more like Ananias, who are hypocrites? We're not totally honest. Hypocrisy is a terrible danger. 
particularly if it goes unchecked for a long, long time. Because you know what hypocrisy is? Hypocrisy is a disguise for courage. It's a disguise for courage. We want the appearance of strength and boldness, saying the right things in front of the right people, but in truth, we're very weak and easily led astray. And the biggest danger in hypocrisy is that if we do it repeatedly, we eventually convince ourselves. We not only deceive others that we're good when really we're hypocrites, but we will even deceive ourselves. And we'll begin to think that we are in the right when we know deep down that we're in the wrong. We become deceived. We will lie to ourselves so repeatedly that in our heart of hearts, we believe we will, we, that we will believe we are righteous. So when we make a public error like Ananias did, we'll still be convinced that we did nothing wrong. How could we have done anything wrong? Me of all people. Because hypocrisy teaches us that we are our own God. We make the rules. We've written our own law on our own hearts. How could I, my own God, ever do anything wrong? Right? Are you a hypocrite? Apparently, the church is full of them, so I've heard. We are not God. And our conscience must not be subject to anything but the Holy Spirit. If our consciences are not subject to the Holy Spirit, but to our own will, our own flesh, our own desires, the Lord will not bless that. In fact, as Jesus said, he will say woe to you. Woe to you. This is particularly important for leaders, for elders, deacons, teachers. We must be particularly watchful over ourselves that we may not fall prey to self-deception. And one of the best ways to combat hypocrisy and self-deception is to let people tell you what they think and listen to it. Open yourself to critique, to feedback. And this doesn't just go for leaders, but for all of us. If someone has a suggestion or a concern, even if it has to do with you personally, take it seriously. Reflect on yourself. Reflect on your behaviors, your practice in light of those comments. They might be right, no matter how ridiculous it might sound. And in a culture of discipleship like we're building here at Main Street, we are constantly admonishing one another in the Lord. We are constantly subjecting ourselves to what each other has to say in our own lives concerning the truth of the way of God, the cross, the gospel. We should expect these kinds of conversations to happen routinely. Make it normal for people to speak into your lives. Not strange or rare or off limits. It means we have to be vulnerable. And it takes courage to be vulnerable before other sinners. Because we get it wrong, and we sometimes will be hurt. But if we are a church that seeks the transformation of our hearts for the glory of God, we want to see this as normal. The Lord stood with Paul in hypocrisy, and the Lord stood with Paul, secondly, in the hope of the resurrection. Hypocrisy, number two, hope. The hope of the resurrection. Verse 6. Now, when Paul perceived that one part were Sadducees and the other Pharisees, he cried out in the council, 
Brothers, I'm a Pharisee, a son of Pharisees. It's respect, with respect, to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. And what's cool about this little midsection here is Paul was not just courageous, he was also observant. He was also observant. In a moment of tension between him and the high priest, Paul realizes Ananias isn't the only one with some inconsistencies. He realizes the clear division in the council. One part of the council was Pharisees, the other part was Sadducees. And Pharisees and Sadducees, if you know kind of the um, uh, New Testament and Old Testament um, uh, history in context of the Jewish religion, they both had important offices, but they, they were distinct, they were different. Pharisees, Paul was a Pharisee. Pharisees were those teachers who were experts in administrating the Old Testament law. They were also keepers of the Jewish traditions. They wrote the calendar for each year and the holidays that would be kept and all that they were going to practice in each synagogue, uh, the things that would, were written down in the additional text called the Mishnah. And Pharisees get a bad rap in our day, right? Because we read chapters like Matthew 23. The Pharisees are awful, right? They were supposed to be good dudes. You know, they were gifts to the synagogue to lead them in the truths of Yahweh. Um, they represented the truth. Sadducees, on the other hand, were more like wealthy rulers and judges. They had more political agendas in the oversight of Jewish culture. They typically believed in the validity of the first five books of the Bible, but not the rest of it, like Hosea and Joel, which we learned about this morning, uh, the first five books called the Pentateuch, which is probably why they denied things like the resurrection and angels and spirits, which there's angels in Genesis, you know, uh, and Exodus. I don't know. They were just, they were just heretics, I guess. Um, but they were rich heretics, and they kind of did what they wanted. And so they had power, um, but Paul knew that they didn't see eye to eye on these things. They somehow got things done. I don't know how they did. Uh, but Paul decides to bring out this inconsistency. Knowing their division, he pokes the beast. He says, you want to know why I'm on trial? I'm on trial because I believe in the resurrection. And, of course, he already talked about Jesus being alive and resurrected in his testimony last week. But now before the council, they just immediately um, erupt in rage. The Pharisees believed in a resurrection. The Sadducees denied a resurrection. Um, Paul was clever. He testified that Jesus was raised from the dead, and that's why he stands on trial. So why don't you guys judge me according to the resurrection, since you guys can figure this out. Of course, Jesus is the one that divides, not Paul. The Pharisees said that they saw nothing wrong with this man. Maybe a spirit or an angel talked to him after all. But the crowds became so violent in disagreement, the tribune had to remove Paul from the situation because they, he was scared they were going to tear Paul limb from limb. And it was the following night in verse 11 that Luke records what Paul experienced in the barracks, that the resurrected Savior appeared to him, Lord of Lords, visited Paul in the barracks, and stood by him saying, Take courage. As you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also testify about me in Rome. The Lord was just getting started using Paul in Jerusalem. The Lord Jesus would stand by him and give him courage all the way to Rome. But notice Jesus' affirmation showing up alive. He's resurrected. 
just like when he first met him on the Damascus Road, his voice crying out to take courage. And this is a beautiful picture for us in the midst of Paul's chaos. The highest Jewish officials officials were literally about to tear each other apart, fighting over Paul and fighting over their own doctrine. They were enraged, angry, cannot control themselves. No peace. Meanwhile, Paul is enjoying intimate fellowship and peace with his union with Christ in the barracks through the night. It reminds me of that time, y'all remember, when Jesus was on a boat with his disciples and the storm started raging and water was crashing into the boat. What was Jesus doing? And how did he calm the storms? Peace. Be still. With his word, he calmed the seas. Courage is fueled by knowing that Christ is with us, but knowing that Christ is alive is what fuels hope. Courage is fueled by knowing Christ is with us, but knowing that Christ is alive is what fuels our hope. If Jesus truly has been raised from the dead and we have absolutely nothing to fear, not even death, and our hope is truly set on the resurrection, and if we truly believe that Jesus is alive and that he will one day resurrect us in glorified bodies and we will dwell with him in a new heavens and a new earth in which sin and death no longer reign on the earth and Jesus reigns forever and always, forevermore as king and ruler, that should change the way that we live now. Our hopeful posture in Christ ought to be so zealous that when others see the hope that is within us, they pity us if they think we're wrong. They should say they are the most pitiful people on the planet if Jesus ain't alive. Is that how people view our hope? Is that how people view your hope? Is your hope in Jesus' resurrection and your subsequent resurrection to come? Is that where your final hope and destiny and desire lies? We are called to be the kind of peaceful, calm, optimistic people walking around this earth while civilization is literally collapsing around us. And I'm not saying we shouldn't prepare or have an emergency fund for rainy days and stuff like that. Maybe we even will struggle with anxiety sometimes. I'm just saying that we need to evaluate where our ultimate hope lies. Is it in who will be elected president in 2024? Is it in the next recession or lack of? Is it in debt forgiveness? Is it in the stock market? Property taxes? The next law that will or won't be passed? Or is our ultimate hope in knowing that Jesus is alive and we will be like him? At the last small group uh, at the pool home, we had a hymn singing. And the first song we sang was, This Is My Father's World. We sing this song usually thinking about mountains and waterfalls and the beauty of the earth. But this truth rings out still while the world is on fire. When the world and civilization is literally burning to the ground. When streets are full of riots, protests, 
When trials and sorrows increase and wars abound on the face of the earth, when babies are killed in mothers' wombs, when teenagers made in the image of God are being taught that there are multiple genders to be defined by sexual orientation rather than the one who made them, when thousands upon thousands are dying from awful, uncurable diseases like cancer day in and day out, when families are falling apart, divorce rates are skyrocketing, when the drug epidemic gets worse and worse and worse, where's your hope? This is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seem off so strong, God is ruler yet. This is my father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is king. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let the earth be glad. If you don't have this kind of peaceful, calm, optimistic worldview while the nations are raging, one reason could be that maybe you're not a Christian. I'm really glad that you came today. If you are not a believer, this world is full of all kinds of evil. It's a hard place to live, but the good news is that Jesus came into this world, into our chaos, into our clamor and rage. He subjected himself to his own creation. He preached peace to us who were near and to those who were far off and then made peace by the blood of his cross. What is this peace that is lacking? It is sin that separates us from God and therefore creates the void of peace in our lives. And unless something changes, we will die at enmity with God, not in peace with God. And that enmity with God will bring on wrath in the day of judgment like we learned about in Joel. And we will perish under God's wrath forever in hell. But God has initiated peace with us by sending his one and only son in the likeness of man, fully God, fully man, who lived a perfect sinless life in this world which was on fire, burning to the ground, killing its priests and prophets, killing its own Messiah. He died as a sacrifice for sinners, rose from the dead three days later, revealing himself to hundreds at a single moment that he was resurrected from the dead and that he ascended on high and is now seated at the right hand of God and is calling men and women from all over the earth, from every tribe, tongue, and nation to turn from sin and follow him as Lord of lords and King of kings. If you look for peace in this world, it will always be fleeting and temporary. But if you look to peace in the risen Jesus Christ, who God raised from the dead and who stands for our justification, you will find a lasting peace. You will find the one that you were created to know in being made right with your creator. And you will realize that this is his world. He made it. He governs it. He's going to burn it all to the ground, and redeem it, recycle it, and make it new, and make it sinless. So come to Jesus. Find your hope forever secured in him. The Lord stood by Paul in hypocrisy. The Lord stood by Paul in his hope of the resurrection. The Lord stood by Paul, finally, in help. The Lord stood by Paul in help. Verse 12. 
verse 12. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. And they went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. So Paul had a nice peaceful evening in the barracks with the Lord Jesus. And the next day there is the development of a conspiracy from the Jews. More than 40 of them got together and say, hey, let's fast food and water until Paul's dead. Until his blood is on the ground. Until his blood is on our hands. We're going to kill him. We're not going to eat another, uh, another bite until we have his body. And so their plan is to go and tell the tribune to call for Paul, and the soldiers will take Paul to be examined, and the 40 uh, Jews will lie in ambush for Paul to kill him when he goes out to meet the tribune. Paul barely survived reviling the high priest. Paul barely survived igniting an angry mob of Jews, Pharisees, and Sadducees against each other. They wanted to tear him limb from limb. Will Paul survive this? These people are so determined to kill him that they are fasting for his murder. Sounds like a murder podcast, doesn't it? Fasting for murder. Uh, This would make an interesting one. They were so determined to kill him. They were not going to eat or drink. And of course, if their plan goes through, they're only going to go like a day or less without food and water. I mean, this wasn't really a lot to give up unless things go wrong. They weren't banking on that. They thought they had thought through every angle of this. They may need to hold on to their appetite for a little longer. Paul's nephew evidently heard of the ambush. Evidently, Paul had a nephew and a sister. We don't know anything about Paul's family from Scripture. It's not written of anywhere else. Paul had a sister. Paul's sister had a son. Apparently, they were in Jerusalem, and they still knew Paul. Um... That's, that's all we know. And we know that God has ordained this young man as a servant to save the day. So Paul's nephew heard about what was going on. My guess, he was probably a young Pharisee, just like Paul was. And therefore, he would have been in the circles to know and hear about these kinds of things. And um, this young man had courage. He heard about these things, and he went to the barracks, knowing Paul was wanted, you know, for murder, or wanted to be murdered. Um, and told Paul of what was going to happen or the conspiracy that was taking place, the 40 who wanted him dead. Paul hears the enemy strategy, and then he calls for a centurion to take his nephew over to the tribune and tell them what he's saying. And so I don't know why a centurion would do that for Paul um, other than Jesus is Lord, and he is provident, and he is sovereign. And the centurion goes along with this. So the centurion takes... Paul's nephew to the tribune. And even the tribune then chooses to listen to his nephew. Why the tribune listened to his nephew? No clue other than Jesus is Lord and he's provident and he's sovereign. He listens to this young man, young man and he takes him aside. He has a private conversation with him. He hears every word. And Paul's nephew is even so bold to advise the tribune what to do. Don't be persuaded by them when they tell you to take Paul out and examine him further. Don't call for Paul. And we won't get into the rest of the text today, but the tribune follows through with this young man's advice 
and saves Paul's life for another day and leaves the 40 bloodthirsty Jews hungry a little longer. This is just good stuff, isn't it? I mean, this is just this makes a good podcast. This is good stuff. This is the kind of stuff that we look at in scripture and we just think like this is too good to be true. Like this is just this is great. And we remember that this is the same God who sent an angel to let Peter out of jail like he was invisible. He just walked out. And we remember that this is the same God who brought an earthquake while Paul and Silas were singing in prison. The Lord providentially saves and delivers his people. I took a class at Southeastern one time as a hybrid, uh, so that meant man, I had to go and spend a weekend on campus. Um, it had been a long day of driving. I was there, and I heard a long day of lectures. I was sleepy. I was tired. I went into the library uh, on campus, and I found a nice, cozy little corner with those big privacy uh, blockers, you know what I'm talking about, old school. I don't know if libraries still have those. Uh, and I just hunkered down in one of those things, and I laid my head down on the desk like a teenager in school. And I had my phone set on the table in front of me. I just didn't even think about it. And I snoozed pretty hard. And I woke up, and I couldn't find my phone. And I thought, uh, this is weird. I was checking my bag, checking my pockets. I, I mean, it was just gone. Um, could, couldn't, I just thought I misplaced it. I dropped it or something. Long story short, I found out my phone was stolen right under my breath while I was asleep. Somebody walked past me in a seminary library and took my phone while I was sleeping. I was friends with one of the library staff. I'd known him from years uh, gone by when we lived on campus. And I told him that I couldn't find my phone. Just let me know if you see it. Um, and he just happened to know of a troubled teenager that had, he had been evangelizing for the last several weeks. He'd been hanging out in the library. And uh, my friend knew where he lived. So he just decided to go to his house on a hunch to see if he had stolen my phone. He went to his house, and the kid fessed up. He stole my phone right under my breath. And my buddy, Corey, got to share the gospel with his mom and with his teenager who stole my phone, and I got my phone back the same day, and the crisis was ended. I'm, I'm guessing that all of you have some kind of personal story like that, where things just lined up a little too perfectly. And you just thought, this is just, this is too good. Has the Lord providently shown himself in your life in times like that? What are some ways in which the Lord has left you speechless with the series of events that he used to bring about a resolution? God is able. I think it's worth mentioning here that, you know, God delivers us spiritually. He saves us, justifies us, sanctifies us, glorifies us. He does all the spiritual stuff in the heavenly places, gives us an inheritance, and that's awesome. But he also does physical stuff too, you know? And sometimes we're scared to talk about that because we don't want to be like health and wealth people. The Lord also takes care of physical needs. We should rejoice in that. He gives us our phone back when we're away from home and we're tired and staying in a hotel. He, uh, he, 
he, he takes care of us. Perhaps one of the greatest, most overlooked points of provision that the Lord uses sending our way is simply people. People. God did not send an angel or an earthquake to the barracks in Jerusalem. He sent a kid that we don't even know the name of to rescue Paul. The Lord uses people and the Lord uses people in your life to deliver you. One way we can know and be encouraged that the Lord is standing by us is when he surrounds us with godly people who are literally standing by us. And you know, the thing is, this blessing is free for the taking for most every Christian in the United States of America if only they will join and be committed to a local church. And I harp on this a lot. I talk about local church and membership stuff a lot. But it's just true, and it's just too obvious. And we won't take it. You know, I sometimes think to myself, if I had ever left Main Street, or if I left today, how lonely I'd be. Because I have some friends, and I have some family. But, I mean, where else am I going to find like 50 people who are going to just lay down their stuff for me? That's what I have at this church. That's what every believer, every member of every local church should experience. A whole family who is just there. It's a scary world outside of membership in the local church. So be in the church. Be among the people of God. Commit yourself to these people. Go to small groups. Come early, stay late. Make relationships. Be with the people. Stand by the people as they stand by you. And last thing I'll end with, this is also a really good reason not to cut ties and burn bridges. What if Paul, after his conversion, just abandoned his family? He had no contact with his sister, no contact with his sister's son ever again. They didn't know what happened to Paul or care what happened to Paul. Clearly, some contact was kept. What if I had not kept contact with my friend at the library, who I had not seen in years? What if Jesus had given up on us the first time that we sinned? Jesus' faithfulness beckons us to be peacemakers, to forgive, to keep relationships alive as long as possible for the sake of love and for the sake of fellowship. Romans 12, 18 says, If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Love that. So far as it depends on you. It's a lot harder to get help from people that you're not at peace with. Isn't it? So be at peace with people. And you have a lot wider of a pool for the Lord to pick from to save, your, to save you again and again and again. <clears throat> you know, in Samuel, uh, a repeated theme of King David is that the Lord was with him but the Lord was not with Saul. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. The Lord was with him. 
the Lord helped him again and again and again and again. There were many days where David was close to death. He was anxious, troubled, alone, confused. But the Lord was near him in the dark days. And in the dark days, the Lord did not say to David, Take courage, dear heart. Instead, the Lord said to David, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. The Lord be with you. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us, who stands by us in days of darkness. And I pray that we would stand by one another as you stand by us. And we would just stand in awe of you, in your providence, and how you just take care of us in some series of events that just seem too wonderful for us to comprehend. We stand amazed in your presence. How marvelous, how wonderful is your love for us. Help us to sing about it with abandon. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.